1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, as we live in a world, the world around us loves to uh, honor people. The world loves to honor individuals. We see that constantly. There's always some kind of award ceremony going on for people. You have the Nobel Prize, you have the Booker Prize, the Academy Awards, the Pulitzer Prize, the Golden Globes, the Grammys, the MTV Video Music Awards, all kinds of stuff. You even have some crazy awards that people look for. Uh, There are numerous awards given out in every field from literature to architecture, really. And there are some that are just kind of bizarre. And I'm sure you've heard of some of these. Uh, One of them is the Darwin Awards. (laughs) We've all heard of the Darwin Awards. Made famous by the naturalist Charles Darwin. And it's given uh, posthumously to those who make the ultimate sacrifice of ridding themselves, ridding the gene pool of themselves. In simple words, it's given to those who die in the most idiotic way. And there's been some really weird ways that people have died. <laughs> Stupid ways. There's the Ig Nobel Award that was founded by a scientific humor magazine back in 1991. And it is given to those who come up with seemingly bizarre inventions that make us laugh and think. There was one individual, Sir... Andre Gilm, uh, he actually received both the Nobel Prize and the Ig Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, the Ig Nobel Prize was in 2000, and the Nobel Prize was in 2010, both in the field of physics. Uh, you have the Fo- Foot in Mouth Award. We've all probably won that award on occasion. <laughs> um, the Golden Collar Awards for you animal lovers. They have an award ceremony that's similar to the Academy Awards, only it's presented to dogs. It was created in 2012 by the website Dog News Daily to recognize the best canine actors. And they get a little collar, gold, gold diamond collar if they win the award. There's also some gross awards. The Stinky Shoe Award goes to those in the world who have the worst odor in a pair of sneakers. This is an actual award. They give it out every year. Well, whenever you have awards being given out or dished out, um, there's some sort of judgment made. There has to be. Uh, Because we have to discern who will receive the award. Unless, of course, we live in our politically correct society today where everybody's right and nobody's ever wrong and there's no losers. So everybody gets a trophy. Um, I don't know if that's beneficial to our children. It makes sure makes them feel good, but I don't think it's beneficial in the long run. So when you give out awards, it can be divisive at times. Uh, there were divisions in the church at Corinth. We've gone over this because people were claiming loyalty to certain individuals, certain teachers. They were setting them against each other. They all had their little group. And if you've been part of the Church of Christ for any amount of time, I'm sure that we've all made some judgments of other people. Whether they're in the church or not, it's irrelevant. We've all made those kind of judgments. Um, Sometimes we become what I call spiritual judges. We all like to evaluate other, other, the emphasis is on other, other people's spirituality. We don't like to look in the mirror too much, but we're quick to judge somebody else. 
And we've all gone there on occasion. And usually it can be either a positive or a negative. You can either judge someone and inflate them, evaluate them and elevate them beyond what is reasonable. Or you can degrade them, tear them down. Uh, Well, it's just as bad to tear somebody down as it is to elevate them. And this is what was going on in the church of Corinth. They were elevating certain individuals over others. That's why in verse uh, 4 of chapter 3, he says, For one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos. Aren't these merely human individuals? He says in verse 9, aren't we all just fellow workers? Last week we saw how Paul compared the ministry within the church to God's field. We closed off there in verse 9. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Using an agricultural term there because they understood that. But now today in verse 10 as we pick up, he continues the analogy, but instead of using a field, he uses a building. He deals with the fundamentals of architecture, of building a building. If you look through the Bible, there's a few things that are as detailed in Scripture as what we find regarding the instructions and the descriptions of the building of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. I mean, it goes on forever, right down to the fabric, how, how long, how high, what kind of pump, component certain things were to be made out of, whether it's wood, bronze, stone, gold, what kind of fabric was used on the curtains, what color was the fabric. We're told the exact placement of each piece of furniture and what figures are carved into the, the walls and the furniture. Now, If you've done any research on the tabernacle, you realize that only the most skilled craftsmen worked on the tabernacle on the temple. It wasn't just open. It wasn't just a come to church, let's have a work day. Okay, you had to have some skill in this area because these were no ordinary buildings. They were, what, the dwelling place of God with his people during that time. And the greatest of care had to be taken in caring for them, and in building them. Well, in our passage today, in verses 10 to 17, Paul speaks of those who build up God's church through their ministry. He says they too must take great care in their ministry because they are also building the temple of God now that we know it called to be the church. So let me read this for us, verses 10 through 17, and then we'll make some introductory comments and then get into the text. According to the grace, Paul says, of God given to me, in verse 10, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones... Wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work 
each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. There's a lot of different judgments mentioned throughout the scriptures. The scripture talks about the judgment of sin, for example. Where did the judgment of sin occur? We talked about it on Good Friday. We talked about it on Easter morning, resurrection morning. It happened at the cross. That's when judgment was made on sin. Well, the scripture also talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, it says, if we would judge ourselves. So there's a judgment that is not just a judgment of someone else, but it's a judgment of ourselves. We're called to judge ourselves. We're called to examine ourselves. In Ezekiel 20, it calls for the judgment of Israel. In Matthew 25, it talks about the judgment of nations. In Jude 6, it talks about the judgment of Satan and the demonic hosts. In Revelation 20, it talks about the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of the unsaved, those who are without Christ. And then we have today in our text what Paul is referring to here is the judgment of believers' works. Those who know Christ and the works that they do in their Christian lives. See, there's coming a day, beloved, that we will all be judged on the basis of what we have done as Christians. We know who that judge will be. We know who will stand before. John chapter 5, verse 22 says that the Father gave the Son, Christ, all judgment. So we know that Jesus Christ will be our judge. That's why it's called the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> it's called that in Romans 14. It's called that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now there's a lot of people that think that somehow when they get to heaven... We've all heard the story. Well, hopefully, when I see St. Peter at the gates, he'll let me in. If you're standing at the gates of heaven, and you're wondering whether or not you'll be let into heaven or not, it's too late for you. There'll be no judgment made at the gates of heaven. Why? Because our faith in Christ is already settled. It's been sealed. Philippians 3.20 says that Christians, believers, has their citizenship where? In heaven. And from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it isn't a matter of judgment for qualifying for us to get into heaven. We're already qualified as believers in Christ to enter heaven based upon our faith in Christ's work on the cross. So if you arrive before God one day and you're standing there thinking, wow, am I going to get in heaven or not? If you're not qualified at that point, it's too late. The Bible says that it's appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. 
And some people believe that when you talk about a believer's judgment, it may not be with St. Peter at the gate of heaven, but maybe it's all those sins that you committed after you were saved. Maybe that's what we're getting judged on. Somehow those sins are weighed out in the judgment seat that we, or the judgment seat of Christ. Well, that can't be true either because if that were true, our sins would not be forgiven. <laughs> because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he not only paid for all your sins, what? Past and present, but he paid for all your sins future as well. And if somehow you had to give an account for everything you've done in a sinful way after you were saved to God, that accounting would never end. Because we all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily. So we know it's not that. Because all of our sins were taken care of on the cross. First John 2.12 and Colossians 2 says that all of our sin is on him on the cross. Even though we didn't commit them yet. He paid for all of them. That's why the Bible says that as believers, as Christians, we will never stand before God and be condemned for our sins. Why? Because our sins are washed away. Our sins are forgiven. There's no judgment to them who are in Christ, Romans 8 says. Paul asks the question, who shall lay any charge to God's elect? The answer rhetorically is nobody. Not a single soul. God already has declared us righteous. He can't take that back. So there aren't any sins for which we have to still pay for as Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, you're really in a world of hurt. Because you got all your sins placed upon you. You're carrying the burden of your own sin. It's only when you look to the cross, when you look to Christ, and you are willing to confess him as your Lord and Savior. And if you're going to confess him as your Lord and Savior, that understands that you need a Lord and Savior. And why do you need a Lord and Savior? Because you understand what the Bible says about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's very clear. There's no hope for you outside of Christ. But when you are in Christ, when you have put your faith and trust in Christ's sacrifice for us, the Bible says that you are declared righteous without sin. Well, some people believe that somehow the believer is going to be judged, maybe not for the sins that they committed um, from the time they became a Christian until the present. Maybe it's not the Peter at the gate deal, but maybe it's those sins that we don't confess. If we don't confess our sins, then maybe God doesn't forgive them. And so that's what we're going to be judged on. Well, that's not, that's not correct either. Some people really believe that you have to be punished by God for the sins you don't confess. That always worried me when I would go into the confessional in the Catholic Church. I'd always think, wow, did I remember everything? What if I forgot something? What if I sinned and I didn't know I sinned? Does God hold that over my head? Well, if you're in Christ, the answer is no. The Bible does not teach that. 
It comes from a misunderstanding of what that word confession means. Do you understand that confession has absolutely nothing to do with forgiveness? Because forgiveness has already taken place. If you've come to Christ, your forgiveness has already taken place. You don't have to, when you sin, go to God and, and, and beg him for your forgiveness. You're already forgiven. Isn't that a wonderful truth? I mean, if most believers could understand that, that would give them a, a real foothold in the enemies attacking them constantly. The accuser of the brethren. The word confess in 1 John 1, 9, homologeo, simply means to say the same thing. It means to agree with. So when you confess your sins, what are you doing? You're going to God saying, God, I know that you think this is wrong, and you know what? I think it's wrong too, and I just want to confess it. I want to say the same thing that is dishonoring to you. But it's already forgiven. That's why you thank him for that forgiveness. That's why 1 John says, since we confess our sins, he is what? He's just to forgive us our sins. And what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's already done. Your forgiveness is not based upon your confession. Your forgiveness is based upon your possession and your profession that Christ is the one who's forgiving you, that you're going to the Savior, that you're willing to put your faith and trust in what he's done for you. With that confession, with confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are forgiven at that point in time. But we're still going to be judged as believers, so what's it talking about here? Revelation 22.12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the what? Judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In speaking about believers' rewards here, Paul is not talking about our judging works or about God judging sin because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, before the judgment seat of God. And we all are going to give an account to himself. We're going to give an account to God. So when we are tempted to judge others spiritually... We don't really have a right to do that. Because we don't even know, besides the fact that we don't know what rewards other people will receive, we don't even know what rewards we will receive. Both favorable and unfavorable judging Is excluded. It shouldn't be something that we should be doing. Matthew 13, he gives the illustration, Jesus gives the illustration of the tares among the wheat. 
and it gives the indication that we can't even tell who amongst us is a real believer and who isn't. I'm sure there are people here in this building today who may not be legitimate believers in Christ. They don't walk around with a you know, big U on their forehead for unbeliever. Now, as a church, we're called in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, to confront a sinning brother, to rebuke sin out of protection of the purity of the, of the, the church, but that's because we see sin. But when we get into the idea of judging somebody's motive when there's no sin present, or we get into the business of judging the the worthiness of somebody else's reward, oh, they must be getting a lot in heaven. Look at all they're doing. I think we're going to be very surprised when we stand before this judgment seat. I think there's going to be people standing before Christ that we think in our society today have done so much for Christ. And people have exalted these individuals and lifted them up. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're at the end of the line. See, Paul has already warned twice in this letter against such worldly elevation of Christian leaders. Even himself, he says, don't don't elevate me. But we shouldn't degrade someone either because we don't know enough about another one's heart. We don't know about their motives. We don't know about their faithfulness. We don't even know about our own. And so the one thing that we're, we know for sure when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the one thing that we know will happen, or the one thing we know will not happen, we will not receive condemnation as believers. You're not going to stand before God going, oh man, what's he going to say? No. Because look at 1 Corinthians 4, just a, a couple pages over there in your Bibles. This is Paul talking about judgment. He's talking about regarding servants of Christ. And he says in verse 1 there, he says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that he be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment, look at this, before the time. What does that mean? It means we don't have any business in the church of judging each other spiritually or motives or anything like that. Now if we see open sin in someone's life, then we need to correct it. We need to call them, as Matthew 18 does, and and confront it and deal with it. But when there's no sin present, we dare not go there because we don't know, we don't have the mind of God, we don't have the mind of Christ, we don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. But we tend to do this all the time. You know, someone will say something to us, well, I know what they really meant. Well, no, you really don't. What, do you read their mind? And then he says this in verse 5, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light, the Lord will bring to light how 
the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. In other words, there's a day coming when all of our motives, all of our purposes will be right there before God. They already are. But look at what it says at the end of verse 5. Then each one will receive not his condemnation, but his what? Commendation. His, that, it's another word for praise. His praise from God. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to hear praise from him? It's not going to be based on who you are. It's not going to be based on anything other than your faith in Christ and what you've done for him, what you've, the works that you've done for him since you've been saved. It's not the judgment of sin. It's the judgment of your works. It's called the bima seat. It's a word in the Greek, bima. It's kind of a tribunal. It makes it clear that the judgment at that place and that time will in no way dispense condemnation for sin. That's not what's going to happen there. What's going to happen? They're going to receive reward for good works. It really draws a picture from the, 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 the games in Corinth they used to, to have. They would fill stadiums with people, and they would have sporting events, and at the end, someone would receive a crown. Well, you didn't bring the person up who was going to receive the crown only to condemn them. Why were they there on the platform? Because they won. Because they were receiving people's praise. They, they received a reward. And this involves only believers. Only believers will be there. Because unbelievers can do works, good works even, till the cows come home. It doesn't make any, make any difference. It says our good works are like filthy rags before holy God. So Christ has judged sin on the cross. And because we stand in Christ, we will never ever be condemned for our sins. Why? Because he was condemned for us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He literally took the penalty of our sins upon himself. God has nothing left to charge us with. Those who are his elect, those who have come to Christ, come to faith in Christ. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. So here, Paul introduces this idea of us receiving these rewards, but he starts there in verse 10, and he wants us to see, first of all, that he is Paul the master builder. He says there, according to the grace of God given to me. Now, he's not saying, hey, I'm like the master pastor. You know, he's, not, he's not bragging on himself. Because if he was, he wouldn't say, well, this is because of the grace of God given to me. Usually people who brag about themselves don't have a proper understanding of what, how God is using them. They think it's all them. But that's not the case. 
He's not bragging about himself. He's, he's saying the only reason that I am a master builder is because of the grace of God. It was given to me. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, then he says this, like a skilled master builder. That word skilled is that word wise. Sophia, the same, same word that was used earlier in the book of of Corinthians talking about the wisdom of this world. It could be good, it could be bad. If it's wisdom from God, it's good. If it's wisdom of this world, it's bad. The word here, master builder, we get the word architect from it, architecton in the Greek. And it means more than somebody who just sits at a desk and does drawings. That's not what this has in mind. This has in mind someone who does the drawings, but also does the building. That's why they're called a wise or a skilled master builder. Well, what did Paul do here as a master builder? He already told us in verse 7 that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. So he's not exalting himself here. Look at me, I'm the chief architect. That's not his, in his intent at all. Because he just got done saying it's God who causes the growth. But he says here, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, someone who comes up with the design and builds, he says this, I laid the foundation. I laid the foundation. He wanted people to know that a foundation was essential for any building. This building wouldn't be here unless it had a foundation. The first thing you do when you build a building is you lay the foundation. And Paul was wise in the, in the aspect of he had, a, he had a wisdom about his ministry. When he would go in to lay the foundation for a church... Usually it's because no one there had laid any foundation. He chose to go where no one else had gone before because that's the way God had gifted him. And he understood that when he would come to a town, we see this in the book of Acts, he was primarily an apostle to the Gentiles. Where did he go first whenever he went to a town? He, first of all, he went to the synagogue. Why? Because they were his own people. He needed to get a couple of those people converted. And he'd go into the synagogue and he'd preach. Maybe a couple of them would be saved. Most of them would kick them out. (laughs) They'd throw them out. And they'd say, okay, well now I'm free to go to the Gentiles. So he'd take his newly born Jewish brothers with him and they'd go and they'd reach out to the Gentiles. See, the Jews were that open door because he was Jewish. He could just go right in there. And he would share the gospel. That's where his passion was. But after being thrown out of the synagogue, he just didn't pack his bags and go home. He'd take those Jewish brothers with him and he'd say, let's go minister to the Gentiles now. And see, he did this with careful planning. This wasn't just on a whim kind of a thing. He diligently planned and he laid a foundation. It has the indication that these footings were 
We're not just something you just throw down a couple inches of concrete and call that a, a foundation. Usually you have to dig down. And when you dig down, then you have build a form. And then you build a form, then you put rub, uh, uh, rhubarb, <laughs> rebarb in there. <laughs> Tell what I'm thinking about. But uh, um, here we go again. No. Rebarb in there, and then you pour the concrete. But it takes time for that foundation to be built. It's not just a simple thing like putting a wall up. Concrete has to cure. Then you have to take the forms off. And you prepare the foundation to receive the rest of the structure. See, that's what Paul's task was. He was a foundation layer. He knew how to properly lay a foundation of the gospel, to establish certain doctrines, certain principles that were essential for the Christian church. And after he left... After the foundation was done, after it was laid, what would he do? He would leave. And he'd call someone else to build the rest of the structure. In this case, he was about 18 months here in Corinth, and then who took over? Apollos took over. Why? Because the foundation was laid. His job was done. He was moving on. But he was very concerned that those who were building upon the foundation that he had laid down would work as faithfully as he had worked to maintain its integrity. And that's why he says here in verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon it. That word builds is in the present active indicative, which stresses continuous action. In other words, the building never stops. It's always been frustrating to me because the ministry is a, is a work that's never done. You can never walk away and go, okay, we're right where we need to be. That's it. Let's do something else now. doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in our own lives, does it? We never achieve that you know, gold status in, Christian, in the Christian life where we don't have to do anything else. Now we can just coast. Just easy street, I've arrived. No, that will never happen this side of glory. It's, it's a continuous building that has to take place. But that continuous building happens on something. It happens on the foundation. And what's interesting here in the language, when he talks about laying the foundation, but I laid a foundation, he says, That's in the aorist tense. What's that mean? It means it speaks of something that happened back here in history with ongoing effects and results, but it doesn't happen over and over again. All right? When we got saved, when we came to Christ, God what? He declares us righteous. He doesn't have to keep on declaring us righteous every day. It has that effect, but he doesn't have to do that because it was done. If you go before a judge and you're found not guilty and he says, not guilty, you're free to go. You don't have to go back to court the next day and say, "Uh, could you repeat what you said yesterday? I just want to reassure myself. 
All right, you're, you're not guilty, free to go. Well, your third day, you know, sooner or later, you're going to wear the judge's, you know, patience out, right? It's like, what don't you understand? And see, this is very important to understand. The, the idea of laying a foundation is not something that continues. It will never be repeated. The foundation is already laid. We, as believers, as ministers, as as Christians, are building upon the foundation. Now, some people say, well, doesn't this apply just to pastors, to elders, to Sunday school, to those who are actively... No, it applies to all believers. I think he has in mind here those who, who mostly teach and build up and are equipped to do so. But it, you can't restrict it just to that. Because down in verse 10, verse 13... He says, let every man take heed how he build. Every man's work manifest. Every man's work tested. So it has, it has the idea of those who are in leadership within the church. Apollos, Paul, others that were involved here. But he also says, but you as the body of Christ are, are building upon this foundation as well. We're all called to do this kind of building. Now, we may build differently. Maybe we build at different degrees because we all have different ministries. We're all gifted differently. But every one of us has a ministry based upon the foundation that has been laid, and we are to be careful about how we build upon that foundation. I'll just say this. No Christian has the right to be careless or to be reckless in representing the Lord with his life, or even the word of God with his teaching. We're we're not called to be careless or reckless. And that doesn't matter whether you're preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning, or whether you're sharing with a friend on a Saturday night over a cup of coffee. That's why it's so important that we understand what this book says. Not what we think it says, but what it says and how we apply it. Every believer, beloved, is to be a careful builder. We all have that same responsibility. Well, secondly, we see not only Paul as the master builder here, but we see Jesus Christ as the foundation. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. See, Paul was the master builder, but his primary task as an apostle especially was to lay this foundation for the Christian gospel, for the church. And that's why we find in his ministry, you know, he hangs out here a couple couple months, 18 months, and then he goes somewhere else for a while, and then he goes somewhere else for a while. Well, boy, isn't he jumping around a lot? Well, that's what God called him to do. Now, there's other people that come after Paul, and boy, they set down their, their roots, and they stay there. Why? Because they're, they're actively building up upon which foundation Paul laid down. But notice what he says here. He says, I laid a foundation. He doesn't say that he designed the foundation. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He only laid it. Why? Because there's, there's only one foundation here we can talk about, and that's what this verse says. The only foundation of biblical Christianity is what? Is Jesus Christ. 
That's it. The foundation of the New Testament is not a bunch of of New Testament ethics that we find in a bunch of different religions. It's not a history book. It's not a book of traditions. What is this foundation? It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Period. I mean, when you look through scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where does everything point? It points to one individual. It points to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament predicted, prepared for his incarnation. Christ is seen even as the creator in Genesis. Tell that to your theistic evolutionists. Those who claim to be Christian and yet want to believe that somehow we evolved. If you hold that view, my friend, what are you doing? You're robbing Christ of who he is. He is the creator. Colossians tells us that. Be very, very careful. The gospel tells us throughout history, all of his earthly ministry, we see that throughout the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's focused on Christ. We see Acts, the history of his church being born and ministered to. Paul's epistles and others are basically commentaries on his message, on his work. The book of Revelation is the final testimony of his reigning and his imminent return. See, that's why Christ said in John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures, and it is these that bear witness of me. The scriptures bear witness of one individual, Christ, the foundation for the church. Christianity doesn't need a new foundation. That's the problem with most modern-day churches. They're trying to lay a new foundation for their ministries. I mean, you can't have Christianity with just a human Jesus. It doesn't work that way. And unfortunately, the liberal church is trying to build a Christian building without any foundation because they want to question the deity of Christ. They want to take away the glory that is due to only him. You have other churches, the Catholics, for example, they're building a building on tradition. They're building a building on good works rather than the doctrines of Christ. Some people are trying to build on top of the foundation with, with their life of works or humanism or pseudoscience. Some people try to build upon this foundation with their own morality or their own ethics. Maybe good deeds that they see themselves doing. But see, the only foundation for a life, the only foundation for the church, for the corporate life of the church is what? Is Jesus Christ. That's it. We don't have to lay a new foundation. And you know what? If Jesus Christ goes by the wayside, guess what? We all go home without a prize. There's nothing left. 
Everything falls at that point. And that's, unfortunately, what's exactly happening in our society today. That's what's happening in our world today. The church is trying to build itself without a true foundation based upon Christ and based upon his word. I mean, if you don't believe me, just, I mean, just go on the internet and Google some churches and listen to what they're teaching. I mean, yeah, there's some semblance of truth there. It's, it's not they're, they're evil, horrible people. I'm sure they mean well. But they've taken this book and they've kind of set it aside. And they definitely don't teach through the Bible. They teach what they want their congregations to hear from the Bible so that maybe they'll come back the next Sunday. Christ is the only foundation upon which any man may build a fitting temple for God. I mean, if God has given us his truth, aren't, aren't we interested in understanding what this book says? Why would you ever want to just hear what someone else believes? Because without that foundation of Christ, no building will stand. Remember in Acts 4, this is an interesting passage, Acts 4, verse 8. I'll just read it for you. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, remember there was a man, a beggar, that was trying to get some money out of Peter, and Peter says, hey, sorry, I'm broke. I don't even give you, but you know what? I have something better. Rise up and walk. And he healed the guy. And the guy went away leaping and praising God. Well, it caused a problem amongst the religious leaders. And it says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deal, a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known, verse 10, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way, whom God raised from the dead, By him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus, listen carefully, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says this famous verse, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. Doesn't matter how sincere they are. Doesn't matter how devoted they are. It's irrelevant. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one answer. It has nothing to do with what kind of church it is or what kind of person it is. It has to do with who the person is, and that is Christ. You may try to set Jesus aside. You may try to set him on the shelf. But he's the only foundation upon which a life can be built. He's the only foundation upon which faith can rest. 1 Peter 2.6 says, Behold, he's quoting Isaiah 28 here. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen, precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. 
But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. I mean, we live in a world where some people don't want Christ. They don't want to hear about Christ. They're disobedient to Christ. They're disobedient to his word. They don't respond to Christ. They try to set him aside, and they try to build on another foundation because they want to do it their way. Well, guess what? There isn't any other. There is no other foundation upon which you can build. Well, Paul here tells us in verse 12, he says, if you're going to build, you have to have some materials, and they were referred to as the believer's works. The materials here, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. He lists categories, you might say, of materials. There's basically two categories here. There's, you can look at it as superior quality. I mean, it does take a rocket science, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, those are nice things. If I had a basket of gold, silver, and precious stones, and a basket of wood, hay, and straw, which one would you want to take home with you? Okay, it's not rocket science here. One is superior quality, one is inferior. But there's another thing here. One group will last through the fire. Gold, silver, precious stone. And by precious stone, he's not talking about diamonds. He's probably talking more about marble and granite and, and things they would build a building with. Now, you can use wood, hay, and straw. They're not evil. They're just wood, hay, and straw. But it will burn up. I mean, if I was in a fire, I'd rather have a, a house made of granite and, and marble than wood, hay, or straw. And so he's saying here that the way you work for the Lord, the way you minister for the Lord, and we're all called to minister for the Lord depicts either gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, or straw. And he tells us here that each one's work will become manifest. In other words, there's going to come a day when you're not going to be able to hide behind anything. You know, in, in wartime, a lot of times they'll take a armored truck. And what do they do? They cover it <laughs> with camouflage. They cover it with weeds and bushes and everything. So why? So people can't see it when they're flying over top of it. Well, all it would take is a fire to expose that. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying, you may be hiding now. You may be thinking you're some stealth Christian now. Somehow you're you're, you're, you're flying under the radar now, but eventually your works and the materials you use for those works will be fleshed out. Everyone will see. God will see. He already sees. There's no fooling him. It says each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work he has. Now, when you work for the Lord, you do it basically in three different ways. You do it, maybe you have your motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we said that. Each one will receive his praise from God. That's a motive. 
I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before Christ one day and hear, you know, boy, you really messed up. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would like to hear, wow, you, you, you did a good job. Now, there may be people that do a better job. That's fine. And we know that's already going to be happening. We're all going to receive some praise. It just depends on how much. Depending on what we use to minister, what we use to build this house that we're supposed to be building upon the foundation of Christ. So our motives are one way. Another thing is our conduct. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's not really, evil's really not a, a great word there because you're not going to be judged on that. As we said, you're not going to have condemnation. You're going to be judged on the works that you've done. It's kind of a poor translation. And then also our service, serving in ministry. I'll just say this about this. You know, we build for the Lord by our motives. We will build for the Lord by our conduct, by what we do. And we also do it by our service when we serve the body of Christ. The problem is some believers, rather than use their spiritual gifts, what are they doing? They're using their natural abilities and they're labeling it as service. Why? Because it's, it's comfortable for them. You know. Um, for example, playing the plan, p- piano is not a spiritual gift. It's not a spiritual gift. It's something that I taught myself to do early on in life and just enjoy doing it. So if I were to come to church and say, well, I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm going to use my spiritual gift of playing the piano. It doesn't cause me pause at all. I feel comfortable playing the piano. I like playing the piano, as a matter of fact. It's not a spiritual gift. It's a natural ability. There's a lot of people within the church that are using their natural abilities and labeling it as service for the Lord. Why? Because it's convenient. <laughs> it's easy. But when... God taps you on the shoulder and says, well, I don't want you just to play the piano. <laughs> I want you to do something more. I want you to do something you can't do within your own self, within your own ability. I want you to have to be dependent upon me to minister. I want you to be in a place of discomfort when you're using your spiritual gift, when you're ministering on my behalf. Why? Because I know then you're not depending on yourself. See, there are people that have the gift of oratory. You know, some people could come up here and and give you a wonderful sermon for 45, 60 minutes, and they could do it in their sleep. It's within their own ability to do it. I remember going to, when I was in Bible college, we had some guys, I mean, they could get up and Mary had a little lamb. and I mean, you'd be crying just because they knew how to work the emotion, the inflection, I mean, the eye contact. Everything was just spot on. 
And I remember after one of those presentations that we were all going, oh man, I don't want to go next. I mean, this guy is just so gifted. I remember the professor, after the guy sat down, got some feedback from us, and we were all like, oh man, that was just amazing. And he goes, the professor goes this, I want to ask you one, one question, class. Where was the Spirit of God? Yeah, this guy got up there with no notes, and he was able to... Where was the Spirit of God? What you just saw was a presentation of someone who memorized their presentation and did it very well. But there's no room for the Spirit of God in that. That's not what ministry is. Ministry is relying on God to use you in spite of yourself. Getting to a point where, you know what? Okay, I'd like to cook at home, so I'm going to use my spiritual gift of cooking in the kitchen. Well, hey, we welcome it. That's great. But if you're a good cook, you could probably throw together something in our kitchen in two minutes. And we'd all go, wow. You know, sweat off your brow. You wouldn't have to depend on Christ for anything. Why? Because it's just a natural ability. But if someone were to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, why don't you give your testimony at the men's study or at this? Oh, I can't get in front of people and talk. Okay, good. That's good. I'm glad to hear you can't do that. So maybe you have to rely on God to do it through you. See, that's when real ministry happens. And I think that that's going to play out in the end. Sometimes we're thinking we're doing all this work, but you know what? We could do all that work in our sleep because it's just a natural ability. And God is tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, I want a little more from you. But I'm doing so much. Maybe you're doing the wrong thing. You ever think about that? There's a lot of people who are very busy in churches today, and I think they're focusing on things that are convenient for them to do. It fits their little niche. But maybe that's not what God wants them to do at all. Maybe God wants them to step out of the comfort zone and be used by him in a way that you can't even imagine. Well, all these things are going to be tested by fire. He says that in verse 13. We just read it. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. You know, when you build a new building, what happens? Well, the city gets involved and, you know, you have all these codes. You know, if we built this building today, we'd have to have sprinklers and all kinds of stuff. Why? They want to keep it safe. They have standards that meet certain criteria. To prevent what? To prevent a fire. Well, God has strict standards for what we build for him with our lives. And when Christ returns, every believer's work will be tested as to the quality of that work. And fire is just that. It's a symbol of of testing in the scriptures. Just as it purifies metal, so will the fire of God's discernment burn up all the dross and leave what is pure and valuable. And you know what? The neat thing is, like I said in 2 Corinthians there, it says we will all receive some praise from God. We all have something that's unique invaluable. It may just be a little bit, but that's okay. Use it for his glory. This is not a time of punishment, but a time of reward. Everyone who is built with wood, hay, straw, maybe just using their natural abilities, they're not going to be condemned, but his reward will be 
conditional upon the quality of his building materials. I mean, when wood, hay, and straw come into contact with fire, one thing happens. They burn up. They become ashes. Nothing is left but cinders. They can't stand the test. But gold, silver, precious stone, they don't burn. They will stand the test. And they will bring great reward. And then the last point here, the workmen. Well, who are these workmen? Well, they're all believers. There's two groups here. The construction, the constructive worker. It says he will receive a reward. Who is that? It's the worker, the the minister, the person who does whatever they do for God with the right motive, with the proper conduct, with effective service. They're building with gold, silver, precious stone. They will receive that, that corresponding reward. I mean, that should motivate us. We should want that reward. It's not a, a cheap trinket we're getting here. This is, this is something we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for the glory of God. When a teacher teaches the word consistently and fully, they're building with good materials. When a person with the, the gift of helps spends their time serving others, in the Lord's name, what are they doing? They're, they're bringing about a great reward. When our lives as believers are lived in a holy, submissive, worshipful, righteous way, what are we doing? We're building with precious materials. In the New Testament, it refers to our rewards as crowns. 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, those who have true saving faith and thus are faithful to live in hope until Jesus comes, there will be the crown of righteousness. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, it says, because the faithful proclaim the truth, there is a crown of exaltation. In 1 Peter 5, 4, because of service of the redeemed, the reward given is the unfading crown of glory. For those who love the Lord, there will be the crown of life, James speaks of. And these crowns is a crown of righteousness or exaltation, glory, whatever it might be. They refer to the believer's promised reward. This is something we have to look forward to if we're a constructive worker. But there's also a different kind of worker here mentioned. It says one will be Receive reward, verse 14. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as as through fire. There's going to be a lot of things that we look at on this side of glory and we think, boy, that is just wonderful. God is going to be so pleased with that. And you know what? On this day, it's going to become a, a heap of ashes. Because we don't have the ability to judge these things. That's why Paul just got t- telling us, don't judge people's motives, don't judge people spiritually. That's that, leave that up to God, when, leave that up to Christ when he comes. That's not our role. It says it will become evident in verse 13. There's not going to be, oh, wait a minute. No, there's not going to be any second guessing here. It's going to be very clear. Now, these workmen are still going to be in glory. They're going to still receive some praise. 
They're not going to lose their salvation. But they will lose a portion of any reward that they might be expecting. That's why he says they'll be saved even yet as though it's through fire. The thought here is of a, a person who runs through flames without being burned. But they still have the smell of smoke on them. <laughs> See, in that day, the day of rewards, the useless, the evil things, all that will be burned away. But salvation, salvation will not be forfeited. He will hold us fast. What it looks like to us gold or precious stone or silver might end up being straw because we don't have the discernment that God has. That's why Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says this. He warned the Colossians. He says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. What's he saying? You're getting away from the foundation, people. Don't get away from the foundation. Taking his stand on visions he has seen inflating without cause by his fleshly mind. See, when we rely on human wisdom, this is what Paul was speaking of earlier, when we rely just on human wisdom, or even, in Colossians here, he says even supernatural visions, rather than God's word, He's calling us what? He's calling us fleshly. He's saying you're you're not acting in accordance with your faith. Well, there is a last group here that he mentions. He talks in verse 16 about us being God's temple. The Spirit dwells in us, the church, which is just a, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. That's amazing to think about that. But he says in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, in other words, there are workers that are actively working to destroy God's temple, God's church. We see them all over the place. What's it say? God will destroy him. We know that God will not destroy those who trust in Christ. So these, obviously, this group here is unbelievers. It's people who have set Jesus on the shelf. It's people who are not building upon the foundation of Christ. And that destructive group can work either from within or without the church. But every believer is the temple of God. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And therefore, the church itself is His temple, God's elect. See, under the Old Testament, any person other than the high priest on the Day of Atonement who dared to enter the Holy of Holies, guess what? Boom, they're dead on the spot. Without question. You couldn't even go there. God would strike him dead. And yet today, we are called before the throne of God itself because of the righteousness of Christ. And when Christ returns, he will bring rewards with him, it says. See, there's no time to prepare for this. This could happen in this split second. Christ could return. 
You know, we want to put off salvation, put off salvation. Well, I'll do that when I'm older. I'll do that when I... The Bible says, behold, today is the day of salvation. You don't ever want to wait for that. If we go to be with the Lord before the time we have committed our life to him, there'll be no opportunity to prepare after we die. There's no second chance. And so we have his word, we have his church. I'll just read a quote by Spurgeon. He says this, After a true Christian has given himself or herself to the Lord, the very next act should be to give themselves to the Christian church. They should at once say, as Paul did, to be united to the brethren of Christ somewhere in the district where he lives. If there be a Christian church, the newborn believer should be at once seek fellowship with others who love his Lord because saved by his grace. The right way to do this is to give himself. Not his name, not his money, not his mere presence, his sympathy, his active labors. All these are part of that gift. But the soul of it all is to give himself in the whole force and weight of his influence, his personality, his ability. As far as God shall help him, he is to give up to the church. Well, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus here today, you are the church. You are his temple. You are holy. You've been set apart from the world by him, for him. So in our teaching to the church, whether it be from this pulpit or by, from a Sunday school class or in our homes, It has to be from God's word and according to his truth. We must not tolerate false teaching because we are a holy people set apart for him. We must not tolerate corrupt behavior, which is not in accordance with God's commands because we're a holy people. We must be careful how we treat the church of Christ. And I don't just mean this church, I mean any church. Because why? It's it's God's temple. Not only false teaching, slander, gossip, quarreling, all those things can be attacks upon the church and upon God himself. We must build in a way that we will escape God's judgment and truly build the church rather than tear it down. I've never visited Abraham Lincoln's boyhood home. Never been there. But I could imagine it's probably not real impressive, right? Uh, Lincoln is known to be a boy who grew up in a humble log cabin. And through work and faithfulness, he became one of our best beloved presidents. But I am sure that that log cabin is far from the most impressive-looking home in its neighborhood, probably very simple. It doesn't have a lot of room. There's not a lot of conveniences in the log cabin that Abraham Lincoln grew up in. What makes it so special? 
What makes that log cabin so special? Why do people from all over the world go to see it? What makes it extraordinary is the one who lived there. There's nothing particularly extraordinary about any one of us. Absolutely nothing. You can put us all together and we're still not extraordinary. And yet, you know what? We are the temple of God. Why? Because God lives in each one of us as faithful followers of Christ, his church. That's why we have to take great care in how we're building upon the foundation of Christ that was laid down for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're so thankful that you have chosen us to make your home within us. I mean, it's hard to understand the infinite, eternal, holy God stooping down to this frail, sinful creature. We thank you, Jesus, for being that strong foundation upon which we can build. We thank you for your saving work that made it possible for us to be the building into which your Holy Spirit dwells. Help us to live and build in a way that pleases you. Not just as a church, but as individuals. I pray that our building will be a building that endures. That we will be worthy to receive the reward that awaits us. Father, if there's anybody here today who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would just understand, Lord, that... Eternity may seem like a a long way off, but my friend, you could be there in the split of a second. When you leave this life and you're ushered into the eternal life that awaits, your, your eternal destiny weighs upon one thing, what you did with Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands before us today as a loving Savior, willing to accept all who come to him in repentance and for salvation. He will take upon himself the burden of your sin and free you from it. He will forgive you of everything that has ever been done as an affront to God in your life. It will be forgiven, paid for completely, freely. That's the time we live in now, the age of grace. Now is the time to come to Christ. Look to Christ and be saved. Because if you wait, and that eternity bell rings, and you're on the other side of this life, for those who are without Christ, it is most miserable for all eternity. Our minds cannot even conceive how horrible hell is one day will be for those who do not know Christ. That should motivate us to look to the Savior now, and as believers, it should motivate us to get the message of the gospel out to those who have yet to believe. Help us never grow tired in sharing our faith, our testimony, living lives of righteousness in this dark and sinful, stained world, especially here on the West Coast. But Lord, these are the people that need to hear it the most. They need to see it the most. I pray that we'd be a living testimony of your grace in our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.
Amen. Amen. Let's stand.